0: Uh, waiting, waiting, and coming up on tonight's episode, it's our premiere, that's right, our very own pilot, and we're going to be talking about a subject Matt and I take very seriously, Aaron Sorkin. We're going to be dissecting his television legacy on our very first episode of The Goldilocks Zone. Stick around, because it's coming up next. You're entering The Goldilocks Zone for episode number one, published January 30th, 2015. Aaron Sorkin's TV Legacy, part one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of The Goldilocks Zone. I am Sean Jennings, and I am joined for the first time and for all the times... By the the man with the master opinion, the fear the beard it is, Matt Mariani. Sir, how are we doing tonight?
1: I'm doing quite good, Sean. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, and I am happy to be here.
1: I am happy to be here as well to talk about Aaron Sorkin. Aaron the man. Sorkin.
0: The man, the legend.
1: The legend with the fast talking.
0: With with the walking and the talking and the hallways. Uh before we get to that. Uh, I want to introduce everyone out there. This is our first episode, so I think we we might want to take a little time and explain what we're doing here, right? Um, And maybe a good way to do that, Matt, you came up with the title for the show, which I absolutely love. Could you maybe explain the origin of, of where the Goldilocks zone comes from?
1: Well, Sean, in the field of astronomy, which is one of the sciences, the Goldilocks zone refers to an area of planets or a particular section of the galaxy where a uh, certain number of planets with habitable life, I mean, like the uh, correct characteristics that would require life to form. Basically, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's just right.
0: That's perfect. Think of it like the Goldilocks story. I'm assuming that's where it comes from. Yes, that's I, the word. I could be wrong. Uh, and that, I think, segues perfectly to what we're doing here, because uh, Matt and I used to have a a game we played. We called it Over, Under, or Appropriate. Um, our version of our Goldilocks zone, where we would take movies, television, literally anything, um, and determine whether we thought it was over-appreciated, under-appreciated, or just appropriately appreciated. And we thought, let's... Share this with the world. That's right, Sean. And now we're going to play that game on our podcast. Yes, and it hopefully will be fun. Uh, I want to let everyone out there know we have a lot of places you can find us on the internet. The phrase to remember is Goldilocks Show. If you remember that, you'll be able to find us everywhere. We're GoldilocksShow.com, at Goldilocks Show on Twitter, Facebook.com slash Goldilocks show. Um I think that's most of it. Uh, this episode will be available on iTunes and on Stitcher Radio. You'll be able to get the RSS feed on our website as well. And the video in 720pHD on YouTube, youtube.com slash Show.
1: All right. I look forward to watching it again We're and t- again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, watching the show you're on. Um, but let's not waste any time. Let's get into our, our friend Aaron Sorkin. We've both been – you are – Matt, it's actually funny. One of the most exciting moments for me – Was when I'd known you for a little while, but I saw you wearing a Studio 60 t-shirt, which I'm sure NBC sold about four of. (laughs) And I saw you wearing that, and I'm like, this guy gets it. This guy, he gets it. So I'm glad we could talk about Aaron Sorkin. And I think we have to start at the beginning, which would be his first foray into television, Sports Night. That's right. So for those of you out there who may not be familiar, and I have a feeling that's a lot of people. Um, Sports Night aired on NBC from 1998 to 2000. It was Aaron Sworkin's first television show. He wrote, um, all of the episodes. It ran for two full seasons on ABC, and it was based around the -the behind-the-scenes of a cable sports channel and their nightly news show, Sports Night, basically an exact parody of ESPN and SportsCenter. Uh, And it starred uh, Robert Gilami as uh, Isaac Jaffe. We had Felicity Huffman as Dana Whitaker. Peter Cruz as Casey McCall. Josh Charles as Dan Rydell. Sabrina Lloyd as Natalie. And Joshua Molina as Jeremy. Um, A series of guest stars also jumped in uh, throughout the seasons. Matt, where would you like to start on Sports Night? Now, you just watched it for the first time. I've seen, actually, the whole show through a couple. But after your first viewing, what were your kind of first thoughts on Sports Night?
1: Well I think we can start off by saying it was very much and very clearly a first of many i guess for aaron sorkin it's it was a very it was very clearly his uh first show it was um basically he was still editing out all of his uh his own he was kind of hitting his own stride and editing out his own uh features and input that make all of his shows characteristic and you can see a lot of the uh like we mentioned in the intro, the walking and the talking, you can see a lot of the um, uh, the the Aaron Sorkin intelligent humor behind a lot of uh, by take basically taking something that uh, maybe not your average person knows about and then dissecting it and going behind the scenes like he did with so many of his future shows. In this case, um, in a, a production of a sports related show that one might find on ESPN. Um, uh, what, what, what makes it unusual though, I think is the laugh track and it makes it a little bit different,
0: right? To to me, the laugh track is one of the greatest, uh, horrors ever done by mankind. What a massive failure. And that was absolutely 100% the network. Aaron Sorkin fought tooth and nail to not have a laugh track and they absolutely insisted on having it. And the problem with that is. This show, you have to remember, was airing opposite shows like Friends and Seinfeld. Uh, It was right in that era where most shows had laugh tracks, but those shows taped in front of a live studio audience. So you'll notice the actors will actually pause between lines for the applause to die down before they move on to the next joke. The problem is Sports Night was not filmed in front of a live studio audience. They just later had the audience watch the tape and laugh over it. So all of a sudden, in the middle of laughter, because Aaron Sorkin writes so quickly and talks so quickly, they cut into the next joke. The timing was so awkward, and a show like that, to me, it's not a comedy. It's more of a comedy than I think any other show he's ever done, but there was enough drama in there that it's not meant to be laughed at. And that's one of the reasons ABC wanted the laugh track, was they were afraid the audience would not know when to laugh. They really underestimated Mm -hmm. us. Of course, this is the network that, at the time, had full house in, like, its 10th season. Uh, So maybe they had to tell us when to laugh, I don't know. But I think that that was a disaster, and it's not surprising how it slowly fades out over the first season uh, and disappears by the time you get to the second.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. I I definitely didn't know that it was the network that was responsible for the laugh track. But I guess... um... Aaron Sorkin doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would want a laugh track in his shows, because most of them are more comedy dramas, right? They're more, uh, maybe uh, you get your comedy, you get your jokes here and there, but I think the overall themes of the episodes, especially with the West Wing, are very serious topics, and um, uh, yeah, the laugh track was a little bit of an oddity, I think, to see that in there.
0: Yeah, and I thought I thought Sports Night did an excellent job of balancing comedy and drama, something, and we'll get to Studio 60 and my many problems with it. Um, one of which is that in the hour-long format, the West Wing did a good job because it was drama, drama with sprinkling of comedy, and you can sustain that over an hour. Sports Night worked because it was comedy over half an hour, with a little bit of drama, and usually over a couple episodes. I think Studio 60 was awkward in that they never quite found the right balance between the two, and they tried to be too funny. And then all of a sudden cut to something serious and then all within the span of an hour. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of us because we will talk (laughs) about Studio 60, I assure you. Oh, yeah. Um, Pacing
1: was definitely a big issue with Studio 60. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking about that in great length when we get to that segment.
0: Yes. So I think now one thing I I find interesting about Aaron Sorkin shows is every one of his shows has the same character types, right? there's the the strong female character, whether it's Felicity Huffman or Allison Janney on West Wing um, or the sort of uh chauvinistic male lead or the the quirky female uh, who was um, Sabrina Lloyd as Natalie on Sports Night or Moira Kelly in the first season anyway of West Wing um, It's very similar the strong male character so you had your uh, Martin Sheen in the West Wing, you had uh, Isaac Jaffe on. Sports Night. It's kind of the same characters. The problem I have is I hate Sorkin's quirky female characters. I hate them. They get on my nerves. Natalie, to me, I did not need her in the show. I felt her character was a little too manic. I felt it, it crossed the line from being fun and cute into just being a pain. Um, and I feel Moira Kelly did the same thing in the West Wing. Later, it was uh, Janel... Oh, what's her name? Uh, Janel Maloney, who was um, the secretary... Josh's secretary on the show. I never like that character style, and that always really bothered me. Now, do you have any opinions on the archetypes Sorkin tends to use in a show?
1: Hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, we can start with the hyper intelligent protagonist. Am I right? I mean, I don't think he's made a show that I can remember without the, without the the main character being um, very proficient at what he does very um intelligent, first of all, somewhat disillusioned, and I think we see that to an extreme degree more in Studio sixty and in the newsroom, uh, both of which we'll get to um, disillusioned with the industry, disillusioned with society in general and what have you um, sometimes though I think maybe that um that side character that you mentioned, that kind of manic um, side character who always tends to be a female in all of his shows. Uh, It kind of borders on maybe a little bit of uh, misogyny, but um, I'm sure it's not intentional, but it kind of comes off that way, maybe a little bit. Um, But then again, there are some really good and positive female roles in the Sorkin shows. Uh, One that I would like to point out uh, specifically is the character from The West Wing, The, um, uh, uh, what's her name? Miss
0: CJ Craig. Is that who you're thinking of? No. Well, that's a good example too. That's a good example too. That wasn't who I I was thinking of. uh, of, The first lady.
1: Yeah. No. Um, okay. First lady works too. See, we're coming up with more examples.
0: (laughs) Who am I missing? Those two.
1: I was thinking of the, um, she's only in the first two seasons and, she passes away in the season finale. Oh,
0: Mrs. Lanningham. Mrs. Lanningham. The secretary, yes.
1: Yes. She's a really good character. And I think that a lot of, um, she presents a lot of sage wisdom to President Bartlett. And, um, uh, but I mean, now that you mentioned, now that you brought up C.J. Craig and the First Lady, um, who was portrayed by. Uh, Channing. So yeah, that's right. Soccer Channing. Um, the two of them are fantastic, I think, examples of strong female leads. So
0: And I and I actually think that's not to harp on Studio Sixty, but I felt like Amanda Pete, who I feel like was supposed to be in that role, never quite got there. Yeah. She did yeah. actually, I think by the, the end of the first season, I actually kind of liked her character more by the end. I wish they had done it sooner. Right. Um, but I, I think Sorkin does a really great job of creating strong characters that you see grow over time. And I think Sports Night actually was a really great example of that. Oh, um, definitely. Because he was able to do it... It was It's rare in a half-hour sitcom to see character development over time. That's not usually done, right? You're The guys on Friends are always the guys on Friends. And there may be little changes here or there, but for the most part, they're the same. That's why people come back. But when you see characters grow and enter in and out of relationships, I thought a good example... Um, was the Isaac Jaffe's stroke, which is interesting enough. Robert uh, Guillaume, who played Isaac Jaffe, actually had a stroke in real life when they were shooting the show. Um, and Sorkin had the choice to write him off the show or to write the stroke into the show. He chose to write it into the show, and I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was a wonderful storyline, well-acted by everybody. And it really helped take that drama into the comedy, but never take away from the comedy. And and that's, I think, why, to me, of all the Aaron Sorkin shows, I actually have a really tough time choosing between the West Wing and Sports Night. I think they're very different shows. So maybe that, you know, apples to oranges. But I think Sports Night is such a strong half hour show. And I get to the end of the second season. I'm like, I wish there were more. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame. Yeah.
1: Um, I think unobjectively, uh, I would say that the West Wing was his strongest show um i liked sports night a lot though and maybe it's still because like i I mean i just watched it this past weekend for the first time um and maybe it's just taking a little bit longer to sink in but i did enjoy the show but um in terms of his strength i think i think he really hit his stride in the west wing and that's the show i think he's best known for and i think it's for good reason
0: well let's talk about the west wing so Uh, The West Wing follows the inner workings of The West Wing, The White House. Uh, Notably on that show, again, another large Sorkin cast uh, led by Martin Sheen as the president, as uh, Judd Bartlett. Interestingly enough, the original plot of the show, there wasn't supposed to be a president. It was going to be like an unnamed, unshown character. And it was just about the staff they brought in Martin Sheen, and they loved him so much they made him president, which smart decision. Uh, Also starred... uh, Rob Lowe, we talked about Stocker Channing, Dulé Hill, Allison Janney, Joshua Molina, uh, John Spencer, Bradley Whitford, um, along with some stars later in the year. Uh, It ran for seven seasons on NBC, uh, starting in 1999 and continuing through 2006. Uh, It's won three Golden Globe Awards, 26 Emmy Awards, including Outstanding Drama Series, um, and the Writers Guild of America ranked it 10 in its 101 Best Written TV Series lists. With that being said, I love the West Wing, but I have a confession to make. I stopped at the fourth season and never finished it. And here's why. Because that's the season everything changed. That's the season Sorkin left. Yeah. And there was the big cast mix-up. They had a huge contract dispute. And so people were coming and going all the time. And I stopped because I was afraid it was going to get ruined. Now I'm assuming you've watched through the whole series. Is is that correct? I have. Did I make a mistake?
1: Not at all. Oh. <laughs> not. I, at I all. love when I'm right. Uh, you saved yourself countless hours of boredom. To be honest, um, it has. I mean, it has a right. Like it has some moments, but there's not a single moment I can think of in the series that comes after Sorkin left, that's even worth talking about, to be honest. And I'm sure other people will have their opinions, but, uh, for me, it's those first, um, those first several seasons. Uh, and it, it had even started to go into decline, I think in season four, um, just, uh, plots kind of getting overwrought and, um, sort of redundant. Um, I mean, how many times do you think you've seen that episode of The West Wing where uh, the president is gonna have to is gonna have to um, either veto or not veto a controversial law, and then in the end he decides to veto it or not veto it based on a personal encounter with one of his constituents? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's happened a lot of times in the show.
0: Yeah, when when his daughter got kidnapped, that was enough for me. I said, <laughs> you you've run out of good plot ideas. Let's just cross into the
1: movie territory.
0: Exactly. And that's that's one of the things that I love so much about The West Wing is I'm going to compare it I don't know if you've ever seen Scandal. Have you ever seen Scandal? No. Okay. I don't blame you. It's not particularly good. <laughs> if you're not familiar, it's on ABC right now and it follows the president and the first lady and his media advisor. And his chief of staff and the press secretary, and it's in the West Wing. Okay, so similar in that respect. Problem is, the characters on the Scandal are murdering each other, doing drugs, having sex with each other, doing unspeakable things, just absolute bonkers, crazy. I go back and I watch the West Wing, and and it feels like it could almost take place today, in this sort of hyper idealized America that Sorkin has created, where the people always do the right thing in the end, where the president actually passes laws that matter where anything is possible. And you watch that. And I, and that's one of the things I love most about this show is it just feels good to watch. It feels like a powerful version of America where the president is doing what the president should do. And the staff is doing what they should do. And they have their troubles and they have their struggles, but in the end they always succeed. And I love that about this show.
1: Sean, are you familiar with the show House of Cards on its I, um, I, Netflix series? Another
0: great comparison. Yes,
1: that I've heard the it compared. Absolute opposite. Exactly, the absolute opposite. opposite. Um, I've heard it said that the West Wing is what we wish our the West Wing is what we wished our government could be. That House of Cards is what we are afraid our government has become.
0: That is a so, very apt comparison. Absolutely, so. and, and if you haven't, you Matt or anyone else out there, if you haven't seen House of Cards, I actually I am a big fan. It actually is a very well done show, um, and I I do really recommend if you have some time to to sit and watch that.
1: Yeah, House of Cards is very well done, and um, Kevin Spacey is excellent.
0: Oh my God, he's in crazy. Role
1: of Senator Underwood, Congressman Underwood.
0: Uh, yeah, Congressman, Congressman and, and then Vice Underwood. President, and then other things. Yeah, I I should mention, and I should have said this at the top of the show, by the way, we're going to spoil a lot of things on this show. And to be honest, I don't feel bad spoiling the West Wing. It's been off television for a decade. You had your chance. You had no excuse. And I don't (laughs) think, speaking of spoilers, I think one of my absolute favorite moments from the West Wing, and I just rewatched it, was the end of the first season. The three-hour episode span of the Bartlett assassination attempt is, to me, one of the most brilliant three hours of television. The, the final episode of the first season and the first two of the second. One of the most brilliant three hours of television ever produced. I, watching as a second time, knew what was going to happen. My heart was literally racing. I was literally quivering in my seat. Because it was so... And this is what you get when someone who has made movies moves goes and makes television, right? It's very cinematic. The music, which we'll talk about Sorkin's music in a minute, but... It leads you there, the right cuts, uh, previewing the assassination at the beginning of the episode, but you don't know what it is until you get to the end, and then it all clicks in your head and you feel smart because you figured it out. (laughs) And then using the flashbacks while he's in the hospital to sort of tell the story and you're cutting in between, so you have these positive moments mixed with the negative. I just, what a great moment in television that was, and I rewatching it again, I just reminded me how much I loved it.
1: Absolutely. Now okay. you're referring to, of course, the, the whole Bartlett assassination attempt, uh Bradley Whitford's character, right? Uh
0: yes, who got shot, yeah.
1: Who was shot, yes. Yes. So um yeah, now that we're on the same page, that absolute brilliant moment of television. Um the the using the flashbacks with the glass and the broken glass and the hand injuries and um True. I I, I I gave Sorkin so much credit. It was one of those moments in any TV show when you just want to stand up and applaud. It's just fantastic. Um, for me, the moment of the West Wing that always took out, though, and it's one of my favorite moments in television of all time, um, is the scene at the end of season two when Bartlett is deciding whether or not, the episode where he's deciding whether or not to run for re-election and he decides um well i mean spoiler alert in the end <laughs> he decides to run for re-election and um you really don't know if he's going to or not and he's going through a lot because uh his um his secretary and uh assistant and lifelong friend miss Lannigan or La- miss
0: Lanningham Lanningham,
1: Lanningham. <laughs> uh thank you miss Lanningham is killed in a car accident and it's a very sad moment, and there's a lot of doubt going through his mind, and he uh, doesn't know what, what he should do next and if he should run for president or not. And then, again, in a flashback sequence, he see, we see the young President Bartlett, and he's um, back at college. at um, His college is his graduation, or it's near his graduation, and he meets Miss Lanningham for the first time and obviously they're both a lot younger than they are in the modern day and um he gets this look like he's um he's super confident you know when he he puts his hand in his back pocket and miss lanningham in the future who visits to him and visits him in the form of a ghost i guess right in the oval office says i always knew when you had that look when you put your hand in your pocket and you looked out and um you sort of lean back that you were going to say something important or you were about to do something important. And then we see at the end of the episode, he does that exact pose when he takes, he fields the question from the reporter that he wasn't supposed to field. Are you going to run for president again? And then he says, he says, I, I'm going to, he's like, I'm going to run. And I'm going to, to win. Win, Yeah. Excellent line. Excellent delivery. Much better than my delivery. You're just going to have to see the episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the. You're, you're exactly right. It's the end of the third season. And I love that whole scene. Even with, with him in the cathedral, with, with the rain pouring down, yeah. he's trying to figure out. I mean, that whole thing was so well put together. And I was actually really disappointed, especially in, for that sequence. He was nominated for an Emmy and didn't win that year. Can you believe it? Martin Sheen. What, I a shame. Give it some... what a shame. Um shame. Yeah, the the thing about flashbacks is I felt West Wing used them exactly how they're supposed to be used, which is don't shove them down our throats. Don't put them in in the right time, which is exactly what I thought went wrong with Studio 60. Was we're seeing flashbacks in like the first episode or the first two or three episodes where it took until like the second season to see any flashbacks on the West Wing. So I felt there was a bit of disconnect on the other shows, but I felt the West Wing did a really great job of putting them in at the right moment and letting us figure out the story over time rather than shoving it down our throats. Um The other great thing I love about Sorkin shows, uh, as I'm sitting and watching them, is the music, right? I think Sorkin did a brilliant job, Uh, Sports Night is a great example of this, letting the music tell the story. It's hard to think of a, especially in a half-hour sort of sitcom, comedy, drama, whatever you call it, Uh, think of another example where a show uses music throughout, ebbing and flowing, Along with the plot and the action, I think the West Wing is another great example, bringing in those tones of of the sort of presidential band and and playing that and using it to either bring up the drama or uplift a moment. I felt, again, another very cinematic touch from Aaron Sorkin, letting the music be part of the show. Uh, And I think that was a really cool, enhancing thing, something that, in retrospect, maybe a show like The Newsroom could have used.
1: I agree. I think that yeah, the newsroom could have greatly benefited from a little bit more of dramatic uh, music. Um, yeah, he he definitely picks and chooses that uh that timber in the, in the in the music very well. And it it's very good at conveying things that maybe the action doesn't at the
0: time. Mhm. I agree. Again, everything about Aaron Sorkin on television, for me, it, to sum it up in a word, is cinematic. Whether it's the way it's shot, the way it's written, the music, the all of it, the character arcs, the flashbacks, all of it, to me, feels very cinematic. And that's so rare in television to, to get that kind of experience. And what's really great about today is you still don't see that on television, but I feel like House of Cards is actually a better example where on these new platforms you get creative types coming in and being allowed to do more cinematic things in the episodic format, and I feel like Aaron Sorkin really pioneered that.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. A lot of people emulated Aaron Sorkin's uh, musical use of music and his prowess, and um, and I'm thinking of an example right now. Uh, I guess. Um, i mean a lot of a lot of very dramatic shows like you have uh a lot of cop dramas like uh um blue bloods i guess is one of them that I can think of offhand that's kind of um uh uses the the, the music to set the tone the wire is another good one yeah it's another very good example i think of uh of of how music is can, is powerful but i mean no no uh no show since then i think has done it with as much expertise as Aaron Sorkin. And I think a lot of shows can benefit from it.
0: And and to me, I don't think the West Wing could get made today. Especially not on a major network, first of all. NBC would never air this show today. And second of all, I feel like today... And, and again, we talk about the uplifting feeling of the West Wing. I feel like today it's all about the anti-hero, and it's about the gritty, and you know, in like... Again, Scandal's a great example, right, where you have a president, but instead of doing honorable, noble things, he's screwing everything that moves and he murders someone and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. I feel like today, and maybe that's why it resonates so much with me rewatching it, is that we don't have that on television today. There's very few shows that have that message. I think um, it reminds me a lot of Stephen Colbert, actually, where it's acting and it's this guy, but in the end... He does the right thing. And there is that uplifting messages and there's serious moments and there's funny moments, but it's crafted well. And in the end, you walk away saying, wow, something about that just felt really right to me. And I, I love that feeling. And I think we need more of that uh, in television.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of the moments we get from our TV dramas, they are uh, not at all idealistic. Like Aaron Sorkin shows, right? They're very um, anti idealistic they're very and not even hyper realistic they're kind of uh the kind of downers I mean look at the message in in House of Cards it's like oh our political systems really corrupt right look how corrupt it is and we will we'll show you we will we will follow this guy around and his day-to-day job in Congress when he's uh making underhanded deals and uh, kinda of screwing everybody and um, like you said scandal um, that's more of a uh, physical screwing of everybody, but <laughs> uh, rather than, I guess, professional. But um, yeah, it's uh, Sorkin, though, his shows were more like, I really like it if the government was like this. And some parts are like this, but we can work together so, so that more parts could be like this. And like, look at this. This is how th- those TV shows you like are made. In Studio 60. It's like, you ever wonder how Saturday Night Live got made? Well, this is kind of like a, a quirky uh, look at the behind-the-scenes kind of nitty-gritty of that. Same thing with Sports Night. Those cool sports shows you watch. This is this is a little uh, sneak peek into their world. And it was all fun. And he's doing that with the newsroom now. With um, the media. And major news networks and syndicates. Uh you know, and, and and some of it, you know, he shows, he, I think he shows a fair portion of both sides in the newsroom, sort of the, uh, the light and the dark sides, uh, which is good. He did the same thing in the West Wing. There was his, his fair share of, of dirty politics. But I think overall, like you said, when you walk away, you feel like, uh, wow, this is the world that I want to live in. This is the kind of uh, I'd like to see it if um, the White House was operating like this, you know.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's one of the things the newsroom really missed was the characters doing the right thing in the end spin. Because even on Studio 60, to some degree, they did do that. I felt like the newsroom, the characters were never likable enough. Like they were on the show. You know, We had, in the first season, Sam on the West Wing sleeping with a call girl. Well, not sleeping with friends, with a call girl. Very specific. He will tell you. That's right. He was friends with them you know i mean we we saw these characters doing you know lying to people not doing the right thing but in the end they always did the right thing and that's a great feeling and, yeah. and sports night was the same way
1: yeah definitely studio 60 um it almost seemed more um not forced but it seemed more um took a little bit longer for matt alby and for bradley whitford's character Um, More so for Matt Albee, Matthew Perry's character, to kind of come around and uh, eventually do something that wasn't self-serving or, uh, you know, kind of altruistic.
0: Mm -hmm. Because even, I think, maybe Toby on The West Wing might be a good example of a character who's perpetually sort of agitated or grumpy or whatever the term is. But he always had that moment in every episode where, oh he's just doing it cause that's his personality and inside he gets it. That's right. Um,
1: I think one of the, one of the really good examples with that was, uh, when, uh, his father comes, we met, we get to meet Toby's father. That's in, um, I believe it was a Christmas episode. I want to say so. season three or four. I want to say three, but, um, it's a Christmas episode. And, uh, we find out that his father is involved with um, like a, a uh, murder ink. He was involved with murder ink when he was growing up. And he kind of distanced himself from his father. And it's, uh, he, comes, he comes back to see him. And he really doesn't want to. He's being Toby. So he's uh, busy. He's being kind of a curmudgeon. But then um, eventually he kind of uh, comes around and re- reunites with his father albeit almost too late, but he he does come around. So that's, yeah, it's a good example, I think, of, of the West Wing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I just, I... I want to say something. I want to try and find something bad to say about The West Wing, other than the fact it went off the rails. But I think every show by the fourth season is off its rails. The Office, very common. Yeah, uh, you could list (laughs) virtually ninety percent of shows, and I think that's true. Yeah. Um, So that doesn't surprise me, especially when you have characters with uh, contract disputes and things like that. You you really you have issues. A fun fact: the show uh, was originally supposed to focus more on Rob Lowe's character of Sam. And over the first season, they tend to focus more on the Josh character, uh, and Rob Lowe got very upset at that. One of the one of his disputes with the show. Really, yeah.
1: I didn't know that he. Would, I, I mean, it's very apparent. He kind of Rob Lowe very much fades into the background, and then he leaves
0: the show. Yeah. I believe that was Go, film Will, and Grace, right? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, he was quite upset that he uh, he was sort of phased out as the show went on. The, 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 one other thing about Sorkin shows I wanted to mention before we wrap up this uh, episode is uh, Sorkin's use of guest stars, which I feel really was exemplary in that you can look at sports night, William H. Macy's character I thought was amazing uh, as Sam uh, or Brenda Strong as Sally, I thought was another great kind of recurring character, Um The West Wing, of course, it seemed like every episode there was another new guest star. Um, I think uh, I was just watching the episode, uh, the couple where Marley Matlin uh, was in uh, as uh, Joey Lucas. And I felt like a lot of shows have a difficult time bringing people in and out. And I felt like Sorkin exemplary job of bringing in guest stars, making them shine, and then escorting them out the back door. Um, And... I think another example I love is at the end of season two, Clark Gregg comes in as the sort of billionaire character that buys the network. And without ever even being a third season in my mind, I'm like, wow, I bet Sorkin could do some really fun things with this character. And that's, that's one of, I think his real strengths is, is guest stars.
1: Yeah. um, I think we see this to a, uh, we see this to a T in studio 60. I think we see uh, his, he he has a very strong cast of guest stars in studio sixty uh, Rob Reiner I remember was in an episode and they're all very because he he sort of has this um he sort of has this advantage now in Studio 60 where uh, the show is about making a show right so he can um sort of play with that a little bit and make actors into parodies of themselves and I think Rob Reiner's character is a really good example of that. Um, and he does that, in a, a few times in that series, um, he'll have a, a uh, an actor come on to play either play himself or either portray a character that has very similar um, quirks. I mean, look at actually a, a good example of this is it's not a guest star, but look at Matthew Perry playing Matt Albee. That's a very good example, I think, of uh, of sort of that's really. For those of you who watched Friends, and for for those of us who loved Friends, and, and Matthew Perry's character on the show it was very much not him in real life. I think Matt Albee on Studio Sixty is a much more accurate representation of who the Matthew Perry as a person really is. Um, but back to guest stars. Um, I don't know. It's been a while since I've watched Studio Sixty. So Rob Reiner is definitely the one that sticks out. Can you think of any other ones? Want, there were some really good ones.
0: I'm, I'm going to Google it. I want to say, wasn't um, Allison Janney a guest star? Yeah. There, there was, I think, now I have to look at the, the list of episodes. Yeah, she was. Because there was one particular episode that was, I think, my favorite episode of the show, which was the um, the disaster show. Yeah. Uh, and that that was Allison Janney playing herself as the guest host of the show. One of – and we'll, we'll talk about this when we get more done to Studio 60, but on my list of complaints of the show, one of them was I felt they never focused enough on the show itself. One of the fun things about Sports Night is they had sports episodes with sports issues and sports stories because it was a sports show. And I felt like Studio 60 didn't do a good enough job where they had this great platform. And I think you're right, and I think this is why I love this episode so much is – a big chunk of it was Alice and Janney being on the show, things going wrong, all kinds of things like that. I thought was excellent, and I wish they had done uh, more of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a show, I mean, that particular episode really showed the struggles of filming a live show, I guess, and just, um, just how different it is from filming a show that is taped and then released later on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you have the the importance where like everything needs to go right at every mm-hmm. exact moment. And uh, at that episode, it sort of um brings to life a situation where the exact opposite comes true. And it's a nightmare, I guess, for a lot of the people that work on these shows. Um but yeah, Alison Janney is um herself uh playing a very very funny caricature of herself, which is uh that's a good moment um in the uh in the Sorkin verse.
0: And 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 all these cross-guest stars bring to light my ultimate dream, which is a super crossover episode between all of Sorkin's universes. The Sorkin universe. Where, like, you know, Martin Sheen is interviewed on the show from the newsroom, and the—I the, uh, the I, I can't even imagine how you would manage to get all of these together. But I'm sure someone has thought of it, and I would love to see Matt it.
1: Albee and Bradley Whitford's character can produce it backstage. They can produce the— uh...
0: And, the and interview it, that's happening and they share a set with the sports show and whatever sort of evolution it's had since the 90s since the network was bought or whatever um and bring in uh peter Karus and josh charles
1: yeah i, mean, that I would can be see great. that working
0: and then really blow some people's minds because you're gonna be like wait if these universes are crossing how is bradley whitford two people and then you're really going to confuse people yeah uh, and i'd be a favorite that'd be a clone uh We're uh, we're running out of time for tonight's episode. So before we wrap up, we have to give our verdicts, our final verdicts—under, over, appropriate. We got to find where it falls in the zone. I'm going to volunteer to go first this week. You you go first next week. Uh, Sports night and the West Wing. We'll start with the Sports Night. For me, Sports Night criminally under, irresponsibly under, dangerously under. I cannot stress this needs to be in the pantheon of television comedy breakthroughs because before Sports Night, nobody did the things it did. They did not do... Even even the single-camera handheld look of the show had barely been done before, and not in half-hour comedy. Now you look at The Office and Parks and Recreation, I mean, you owe a lot of that to a show like Sports Night. Um, Never mind all the other things we talked about. So, criminally under. The West Wing... I think that's tough because it, it gets a lot of credit. It really does. I mean, we talked about where it's falling on these sort of critics' lists and the awards it won. I mean, people did recognize it as a great show. I think at the time, I would say appropriate. When it was on, I feel like people, you know, it, it never cracked the top ten when it aired in terms of shows. But There were also a lot of popular shows on in the late 90s. Today, I'm going to go with appropriately under. Now, see what I did there? Not over under, not a little under appropriately under. It's underrated. People should go and watch it. I'm not going to say drop everything you're doing right now and marathon it until your eyes bleed, but it's, it's definitely worth watching. And I will quickly mention that uh, Sports Night is available in its entirety on Hulu, and West Wing is available in its entirety on Netflix if you're interested. Matt, what say you?
1: Alright, um, I mean, I hate for our first episode to end in a uh, consensus. I'd much rather prefer it if we could have a little bit of debate, but I'm going to have to agree with you on that, um, although I would say that Sports Night, where I'm where I am at right now, I would say under, uh, but moderately under, maybe not to the um, the vast degree,
0: <laughs> but the fervent Our extent spouting. of my opinion, that's
1: <laughs> but I would say definitely under. I would uh, go ahead and say that the West Wing uh, in its high time was appropriately rated and now. Um, The modern day is vastly under. I think it's getting forgotten about all too quick. And uh, anybody who's disillusioned from watching House of Cards or watching Scandal should definitely pick up the first two seasons of the West Wing and see see just what our government could be.
0: I think we should get our politicians to go watch it. I agree. You know, it's funny. And you watch that show. It's the same issues we're talking about today. It's, you know, gun control and immigration and all this stuff. And. If the characters it on TV all that can ago. do it, why can't we yeah. do it?
1: It wasn't made all that long ago. I think what I think is the next time the government has a shutdown, both sides, uh, president and Congress, should just both sequester themselves in a room and watch the first two seasons of the West Wing and see how we can all just get along.
0: I agree wholeheartedly. We have one more it's thing to get to country. before we wrap up. Matt, this was your idea. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, our sort of our question of the week. Why don't, why don't you explain this?
1: All right. So this segment uh, is how I'd like to end our shows. Um, I would like to ask a question to our audience at home and uh, I'm going to call it, would you rather? All right. So I'm going to give you two, maybe more this week. We're going to come up with um, an unlimited variation of scenarios um, of which one you would rather do now. Uh, Morgan Spurlock, a couple years back, put out a documentary called Supersize Me, where he had to go on an all McDonald's diet for one month. Now, to the audience at home, I ask you if you had to do a similar documentary, and now you have to do it, you have to make a documentary that's similar to Supersize Me, there's no getting out of it. Which restaurant? Food chain or um, otherwise food purveyor, would you choose to do this 30 day diet? Which one would be uh, a food that you would like to do? And I'd also like you to pick a food that would completely disgust you if you have to eat it for 30 days. Um, so either one or the other, or both, your choice. That's the question I'd like to ask to the audience tonight in the uh, would you rather section
0: that's awesome and i'm excited we want to hear your responses so hit us up tweet at us at goldilocks show you can also email us goldilocks show at gmail.com we will coalesce your answers maybe mention a few of them on the show next week matt do you want to give your answer to this this week or do you want to wait until next week
1: I think I'll wait till next week. Wait
0: till next week. He's previewed his answer to me, and I promise it's (laughs) worth sticking around for. Uh, We thank all of you out there for joining us on the show. I'll remind you, our website, Goldilockshow.com. It has links to everything we do, so it's our one-stop shop for everything Goldilocks Zone. Uh, We will be back next time with part two of our look at Aaron Sorkin on television. We'll be talking his less successful shows, including Studio 60 and The Newsroom, What Went Right, What Went Wrong, and... The ultimate conclusion of, what is Aaron Sorkin's TV legacy? Matt, I thank you for being here. I thank me for being here. Uh, It's wonderful. We appreciate you guys being out there. And we'll see you next time for a brand new episode of The Goldilocks Zone. Good night.
1: Good night.